And so we are in Ephesians chapter 5 today. And as we talk about this, in some way, I mean, look at this picture. This is a mother and a daughter. You'd almost think they were twins, especially if both pictures were in black and white or both were in color. Parents and children look alike in, in maybe in their eyes or their hair color, how tall they are. Often they even have the same mannerisms. Have you noticed that? The way they move their hands, uh, even the way that they speak and how they have intonation or the phrases they use. It's amazing how much we are like our parents. Here's some other pictures. Here's a father and a son. Again, look at how closely they look alike. And, and I think this picture here, I don't even know if it's real. I mean, this looks too good to be true. Uh, uh, it look like twins. Isn't it amazing how much we are like our parents? Now, when we're teenagers, we want to get as far away from our parents as we can. And we vow that we are going to be different than them, usually. And it's amazing by the time we get to middle age, we realize in lots of ways we are just like our parents. And usually it's devastating to us. But then as we get older, we kind of become proud of the fact that our parents have given us so much and we are proud to be like our parents. And isn't it also true that young children imitate their parents? Uh, little children watch mom and dad. Whatever mom and dad does, that's what they do. And so that's why we often get the phrase of a, someone who's a hypocrite because they say to uh, do as I say, but don't do as I do. And you know with children, that doesn't work. You can say all you want, but they're going to imitate what you do. So their parents, this is true. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 is this. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We are loved. We are God's kids. So Paul tells us then to imitate, to copy, to act like God. This isn't the first time in his letter Paul has told us this. We have been learning over the last couple of weeks how we are to walk with God. And Paul said earlier in Ephesians 4 that we are to walk worthy of our calling. In other words, we have been called by God. We have been saved by Him. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we are to act like and live like we're God's children. Also, he said that we are to grow up. We're not to stay babies and immature and easily led astray. We are to grow up. Last week, we learned that we're not to walk like Gentiles do. We are to throw off our old life, those old, dirty, smelly clothes, and we are to put on the nearly the same types of things. He's using different metaphors, saying it in different ways to remind us of this simple truth. We should look like, in our actions, and our thoughts, and our speech, like God, like Jesus Christ. That's how we live our life. And he goes on in chapter 5 to tell us three more ways we are to walk. And we are to walk in love, in light, and in wisdom. So the first one is to walk in love. How does God love us? God loves us unconditionally and sacrificially. We find that out here in Ephesians 5, 2 through 6. A sacrifice as Christ also went offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. 
obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. God loves us unconditionally and sacrificially. Think about this. God never says, I will love you if. God doesn't say, I will love you if you straighten up your act. God doesn't say, I will love you if you make enough money. God doesn't say, I will love you if you treat someone else while we were sinners. When we were far from God, when we were, uh, didn't even want God, that's when God loved us. And God loves everybody. doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. God loves us unconditionally. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. That's how big His love is. And Jesus Christ proved to us that God loves us sacrificially. Because Jesus died in our place where we should have died for our sin. Jesus died for our sin. He gave His life. That's the ultimate way to show love is to give your very life for someone. That's what's said in the Gospel of John. And that's what Jesus did for us. That is how we are to love. That's a selfless love. When you love unconditionally and sacrificially, you are not thinking about yourself when you love that way. And that's how Jesus loves us. And so if we are to walk in love, we are to love others that way. The opposite of love, we often would say, is hate. But Paul is telling us the opposite of love is selfishness. And the reason is is because love is to be selfless. So the opposite of being selfless is to be selfish. And that's what he says in these verses, what we're not to do. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscene, foolish, and crude talking, and joking. Paul says you should not even talk about it. It shouldn't even be heard among you because someone who's doing this is the opposite of selfless love they want to do and doesn't care about anyone else. They have basically made themselves to be God. That's why that person's an idolater. When it's all about me, 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 and I, 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 then the me and the I is now God. I will make the rules. I will do what I want to do, and I don't care about anyone else. And someone who does that, commits these sins, that person is the opposite of a loving person. It's a selfish person. And Paul says if you're walking in love, you're not doing this. Notice that Paul says it shouldn't even be a hint of it, not even talked about. This convicts me sometimes when I think about what I, what we as Christians talk about and what we Watch, you know, you, let's say you're, you're not committing any of these. But then let's say you watch television, watch movies, and you're talking about it, and you maybe even laughing about it. Well, that's not proper for us who are Christians. It's just not, don't do this. Don't even talk about it. Don't think about it. Because what happens when you watch it, and you talk about it, and you think about it, 
then you start to do it. And then if you are doing it, then you are now the idolater and now you are the selfish one. Simply because you started talking about it and thinking about it. So it's more than just not doing it. Don't even talk about it. Don't even think about it. Paul says there's a consequence for the one who is selfish. He says those people, the sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolaters, they have no inheritance God. When you read that, it can be kind of scary. Heaven? I mean, it's hard to admit that you're never greedy. I mean, maybe someone could say, well, sexual morality, that's not me, or Course joking, I've never told an off-color joke, but it's hard to say that none of us are greedy. Most of us at some point have wanted something that someone else had, or we want more of what we have, and we're not satisfied with what we have. And so if you start thinking about it, you start to say, well, if those people aren't allowed in heaven, am I going to be there? Is there going to be anybody there? I don't think Paul is saying that sinful people don't go to heaven. I mean, if that were true, there wouldn't be anybody in heaven because we all are sinful people. But what he is saying is when you get to heaven, there's not going to be any of that there. And the, and the people who do that and the people who applaud that and the people who want that, think about this. If earth here, we pray and we hope for that it would be a, a little bit of heaven. We want it to be more like heaven. It would, we would think this place would be a better place to live if it were more like heaven. Well, in heaven, there's not going to be any selfishness, none of these sins. So why should we talk about them, watch them, participate in them now? Let's not make this place sinful. Let's make this place more like heaven. That's what Paul is saying. And then he says something, a warning to believers and unbelievers. God's wrath is on sinners. Too many times we Christians think, well, because we're our dads, God's wrath is not going to be on us. Uh, God's, he's our father. That's kid or daddy. He, he's just going to say, oh, that's just Wayne being a curse. And it's the opposite. If God's wrath comes down upon those who are sinners and are disobedient and idolaters, it's going to be more so upon us who are his children. Uh, think about this. When you are out in public and you see some kids acting up, parents, do you go and discipline those kids? <laughs> you probably think about it. You know, you might say, well, gosh, that mom or dad doesn't know how to discipline their kids. Or that was my kid. He'd get a swat on the bottom. Or that was my kid. I wouldn't spoil him with a toy or some candy. You would have some opinions about it. And you would uh, maybe even make some comments about it. But you're not going over there grabbing the kid and swatting them or grabbing that kid. So think about it this way. When God's wrath is coming on disobedience, you might even say, well, if God's looking at unbelievers, well, they're not really my kids. I'll just leave them be. But when it comes to us who are his kids, that's when he's going to say, I've got to change that. I've got to do something about that. So in one sense, I might say God's wrath comes more upon his children than unbelievers. I mean, how are unbelievers supposed to act? Like unbelievers, that's what they're doing. How are God's children to act? Like unbelievers, no. So when he sees it, God is going to discipline and get rid of it, change it. 
So Paul warns us, don't think you can get away with sin because you're God's children. In fact, God's wrath comes up. He also says to walk as children of light. He says this in these verses. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Maybe just try shouting this one at them. Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I don't know if that'll work, or maybe some water. I don't, what kids, what works? I don't, music, shouting, threatening? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. When you find out, let me know, because I still have some uh, sleepers that don't like to get up. Anyway, we're talking about the... You can't have a starker contrast than darkness and light. And so Paul uses this metaphor. He talks about the works of darkness. Now, isn't it true that people who commit sin or illegal activities often literally do it in the dark? Isn't it true that if people rob places, they often do it in the literal dark? They can hide better. There's not as easy to see them. There's no one there at the house or the store. They can get in, get the stuff, and leave. And isn't it true that even at your house, you turn on lights inside, outside at night, and we're told that that keeps away thieves because when there's light, people can see them, and so they want to be in the darkness. So Paul says that these works of darkness, which are sometimes literally done in the dark, figuratively bring darkness. They're dark because they're fruitless. A soul, they bring deadness to a society. The works of darkness, sin itself, never brings anything good. There's no fruit. It doesn't bring anything that lifts up. It doesn't bring anything that lasts. It doesn't bring anything that makes society or a person better. That's what's so deceitful about sin. It promises pleasure and it promises something good. And often sin for a moment does. It brings something that feels good and it brings pleasure. But then what comes after that is a slavery to it. Comes after that is death, comes separation, comes hurt. So sin destroys. That's why the works of it, even shameful to mention. Notice again the emphasis on talking about them. So not even talking about them is a good thing. That's how sinful they are. And Paul says, don't be partners. Don't partake in the darkness, but rather be children of light. The exact opposite. When he's talking about that, notice he talks about that light brings fruit, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So good works are fruitful. They build up. Good works are fruitful. They bring positive change. Good works are fruitful. They will be created to do good works. So God has the good works laid out for us. And then when we do those good works, we receive reward. And that reward lasts for eternity. So goodness, faithfulness, 
truth, these things that are the fruit of light, do bring fruit, positive, bring good things, the opposite of the fruitless deeds of darkness. Paul says what we should do is expose the deeds of darkness. And sometimes I think we get confused about what Paul is saying here. Telling them how dark they are and how dark it is around them. That doesn't really help. If someone's in the literal dark and you tell them you're in darkness and it would be better to be in light, you know, they're still in darkness. That hasn't done anything. But if you flip a light switch on, now they're in light. And so we don't expose the deeds of darkness by going to unbelievers and telling them you're really dark. Okay, you're, you're, you're really in sin, you're a slave to it, your deeds are darkness, they're fruitless, you're evil. Uh, that doesn't necessarily want them to change their life. But if we live a life that's in a contrast of truth and of life, see positive change and they see us how we change and we see how a church can change and how a community can change. And when they see the light... It exposes how dark they are. That's how we expose the dark, by being light ourselves. And then the contrast becomes perfectly clear. It's kind of crude, but isn't it true that uh, when the cockroaches are in the dark, they're eating the crumbs on the floor and everything, and you flip the light switch on, that's when they scurry and they scatter? Uh, The light exposes what's in the darkness and righteousness and holiness. It's a life that's lived in the light, and it exposes the deeds of darkness. Paul says one more thing, to walk wisely. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul's using lots of threes. Three ways to walk, love, light, and wisdom. He's going to tell us now three ways to walk. And wisdom. Our life sometimes is lived this way. We're just trying to survive day to day. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. You wake up in the morning, you survive the night, you're alive, okay? And now you think of what you have to do that day. You know, I, ha- I have to get to work, or I have to get the kids to school, I have to help them with the homework, get the yard work done, or the, the dishes done, or get these bills paid. You're thinking about the task of the day, and your only goal for the day is to make it to the end of the day so you can go to bed and then survive the night and do it all over again. And when we live that way, going from day to day, only thinking about the immediate urgent task, only worried about getting through the day, what happens is the day turns into weeks, months, years, and it feels like, and it can be true, that time has been wasted. And so a year can pass, or maybe a season of life can pass, and nothing really has been accomplished. We've survived. 
The reality is every day God gives us opportunities. Opportunities to grow closer to him. Opportunities to change other people's lives positively. Other opportunities to serve and to love. Those opportunities are there. Going back to that image of the good works God has given us and laid out for us. If we're just trying to survive the day, what will often happen is we'll be focused on the ground and we're just walking, trying to make it, watching our steps to make sure we get through. And when we do that, we miss the opportunities that are here and here and here and there. So Paul says, make the most of the time. The opportunity is evil. It's more important than ever. Do good and to change. Also, because the time is short, we never know how much more opportunity we will have. I'm always struck by how short life is. We're told other, other places in Scripture, in James, that it's like, our life is like a vapor. We're told in the Old Testament our life is like grass that grows quickly and then the sun scorches it and it withers. I'm reminded every time I walk from the sanctuary down here to the CLC and walk past the cemetery... How many brothers and sisters worshipped at Olive Branch over the years that are there now? I don't even know who they are. I often think about what it was like for them. You know, to, again, a lot of their life was just surviving, raising the kids, making a living. But now, no one remembers what our life is. So that's why it's so important that's not to be depressing. <laughs> That's meant to motivate us to do something because we don't have much time. Paul goes on and says, to understand the, Lord of the, will, uh, the Lord's will, not to be foolish. See, a, a fool knows what is right but doesn't do it. Someone who is wise knows the will of God and does it. There's plenty of Christians who know what they're supposed to do. They've heard thousands of sermons, thousands of Sunday school lessons, thousands of devotions. They've seen it. They've heard it. They know what to do, but they're not doing it. That's foolishness. Paul says, you know what you're supposed to do. Be wise and do it. That's when someone who is wise filled with the Spirit. Sometimes there's confusion about what it means to be filled by the Spirit. It doesn't have to be too complicated. This is the... Uh, the thing to know right here. When we are saved, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that moment, God the Holy Spirit indwells us, lives within us. That thought sounds impossible. It's certainly impossible to understand. To understand the God of the universe, like I talked about earlier, is everywhere, somehow is also in here. But just like in the Old Testament, God was everywhere, but he was there in the tabernacle. Paul even says that we, our bodies, are the tabernacle now of, Jesus, uh, of God. So God is, in some way, literally present right in here in me and in you if you're a Christian. Now think about that. I don't know where he is in here. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know how that works, but the holy God, he's right here. So think about what could happen... If I allow God to fill me and control me and influence me. That's what Paul is saying to do. To be filled by the Spirit means that God, in a sense, is in control of us. Now, think about it this way. 
This is what Paul says. When you drink wine and you get drunk, that alcohol has an influence on you. You might start to say things you wouldn't normally say, do things you wouldn't normally do. You can't use it as an excuse and say, well, that wasn't me, that was the alcohol. I mean, you can try it, but try that in court. Uh, when you're uh, drinking and drinking, it wasn't me, judge, I was just the alcohol. They're going to laugh you out of court, slap you with a fine, put you in jail. Yeah, it was you. There is some truth to that, isn't it? Yeah, it was you, but you were influenced by that alcohol. So the same is true with the Holy Spirit. We still have free will. We can say no to God if we want to. We can say no to Him. That's what the Bible says is quenching the Spirit. That's when God the Holy Spirit is telling us, teaching us, moving us. Almost, I get, again, the image is, uh, it's a flame within us. And then we quench it. We get a bucket of water and we dump it on it. And then we have quenched the Holy Spirit and we've said no to God. So we can say no to God. We have that choice. When we say no to God, the Holy Spirit, the more influence He has over our life. And we might even start to say things that we're not used to saying. Doing things we were uncomfortable doing. We might start doing things that's out of character for us. You know what? That might be a good thing. Because we were doing what was natural to us before, but now we're doing things that are supernatural to us. Because we're being filled by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says when we are going to walk wisely, we are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll know the will of God because the Holy Spirit teaches us that. And then we'll have the power of God within us to do it. And that's why we're told to be filled by the Spirit. So the simple thing is this. To be filled by the Spirit is to be influenced or controlled by Him. And the way you do that is you listen to Him and you say yes to Him. That's the simple truth to that. And then he quickly gives us these ways that you can tell if someone's filled by the Spirit. Someone who's filled by the God, you're going to be joyful. And notice how it, when we sing psalms and spiritual songs and hymns, first we're speaking to each other. So that's why I like to sing loudly so you can hear me because I'm speaking to you. Okay? So we're speaking to each other. So think about that. We often do think about what he says next, that we are singing to the Lord. But our songs are to encourage each other too. We encourage each other. We sing to the Lord from our heart. I love that picture. It's not reading words on a screen. It's not saying something because we have to. It's not coming and seeing a song and crossing your arms and saying, well, I'm not going to sing that. No, there's a joy in your heart and it comes from your soul within you and you want to say it to God and to each other. And that's a sign of being filled by the Spirit. One verse. Paul elsewhere says to give thanks in all circumstances. That's pretty easy to do. Because there's always someone worse than you. Okay? It may not make the pain go away. It may not give you comfort, but it puts everything in perspective. I guarantee you, no matter what you are going through, there's someone who has it worse than you. So you can be thankful for that, if nothing else. But here Paul says to be thankful for everything. So that means everything that's happening in your life right now has ever happened in your life, be thankful that it has and that it's there. And that sounds crazy, but this is how you can do it, very simply. If you know that God is in control, you know that He loves you, and you know that He has a perfect plan for your life, then everything that happens to you, you can thank God for. Again, God is in control, He loves you, and He has a perfect plan for your life. If those three truths strengthen your faith, you can say thank you, God, to whatever happens. 
And finally, we've come full circle. The one who is filled by the Spirit selflessly and more concerned about other people than they are about themselves. When we as Christians are more concerned about each other, we will submit in humility to each other. Another sign that we are filled by the Holy Spirit. Right now, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. This is going to be an opportunity. I've just talked about opportunities. I've just talked about the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I've just talked about saying yes to Him. Well, this is the moment. Right now is an opportunity. God has said something to you this morning. I know I've said lots of things. One of those things God probably used and has said something to you. So right now, don't quench the Spirit and say no. Say yes. And I don't know what he said to you. I don't know what saying yes means. But right now, as we respond and as we sing and as I pray, this is the opportunity to do what God is telling you to do. And do it right now. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. My prayer is for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would listen and we would obey. Right now, Lord, is a time, an opportunity to say yes to you. I pray right now that we would humbly bow before you and say yes to you. Lord, if it's sin that we need to repent of, if there's darkness and there's immorality that is not what we as your children should be doing, I pray that we would repent of it. Lord, if there is a life that's lived in survival and not in making the most of every opportunity, I pray that we would make the most of our time. Lord, I don't know what you have spoken specifically to my brothers and sisters But I pray, Lord, that right now we would say yes and that we would leave here, Lord, ready to serve you in this week, completely right with you. And I pray this, Jesus, in your precious name.